Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we will be going through our series, Hope Amidst the Darkness, going through the book of Micah. Pastor David this week will be preaching from Micah 6, 1 through 8. And the name of the sermon is called The Gospel According to Micah. Let's join Pastor David now. Yeah, if you have access to Scripture, please uh, meet me in Micah chapter 6. We'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through verse 8 today. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We're continuing our series calling it Hope Amidst Darkness, which is in many ways the pervading message of the entire book of this Old Testament prophet, Micah. And I hope you found um, that through this we realize uh, sometimes the Old Testament prophets can be hard and confusing, but as we go through this together, I am amazed at how applicable and pertinent God's Word is. No surprise, right? It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's profitable for us. So as we continue through this series, I pray that it continues to be a blessing to you. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Let me read the passage before we go any further. This is what God's Word says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Verse 3, O my people, what have I done to you? God asks. How have I wearied you? Answer me. God says, verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Verse 6, God's people respond, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he's told you. The prophet responds, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word now, we ask that it would do what your word does that it would shape us, that it would mold us, it would encourage the discouraged, sustain the weary, uh, inform and instruct, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we grow in a sense of worship and awe of you. And Lord, ultimately, that our lives might look different. Lord, we're not here to get more information, at least that, Lord, but more so, we're here for our lives to be changed. We're here to be transformed by you. We're here as a community of believers, of Christians, that we together want to look more like you. So, Father, accomplish that in and through the preaching of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen, amen. Uh, One of the big questions I think, I, I think it's a big question, one of the big questions I think we ask is, how does the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and our obedience, or how does the gospel and topics of justice, how do they fit together? (laughs) 
In all three of those things, the gospel of grace, Christ's incarnation, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all that he, all who he is and all that he's done for us, the message of the gospel, uh, that we see that absolutely in the Bible. We also see components of obedience, responding to him, uh, our journey of discipleship, obedience, and we also see dynamics of justice in the Bible. Those are in the Bible. When you read the Bible, you will not be able to make it from Genesis to Revelation without hitting on those words or those concepts. That they are in the Bible, that's understood. How do they fit together? <laughs> that's the question. That's one of the things that thoughtful Christians have wrestled through throughout the centuries. It's one of the things that thoughtful Christians today wrestle through. Which one flows from the other? Is, does the gospel lead to these things? Is it the other way around? How do these fit together? And how they fit together matters. It's really, really important. Because in many ways, if we mix the order, if we place them in the wrong sequence we actually lose the message of the gospel. We actually lose biblical Christianity. So how they fit, it matters. And Micah chapter 6 is going to show us exactly how these components, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and either our obedience or justice topics fit together. And it shows us right out of the gates in, in Micah chapter 6, in these opening verses, it calls to us, it yearns to us, it beckons us that we would see what God has done for us. That we'd see what God has done for you. We'd behold and see and appreciate His saving acts on behalf of His people and that we would appreciate that to the point of, of trusting in Him and giving ourselves to Him. So first step, see what God's done for you. Let's look at these first verses. Look at 1 and 2. God says, hear, or God's prophet, Micah says, hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. God asks, verse 3, O oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And the scene opens in Micah chapter 6 in a courtroom that in many ways God is, is bringing, it says twice, an indictment against his people. He's contending with his people before the witnesses of all creation, the mountains, the foundations of the earth. And God is coming to his people and he is asking them, what have I done? Verse 3, God's saying, has there been anything that I have done that has cooled your affections for me, God says? What have I done in my history to, to, to do anything to cause you to turn aside or to rebel or to turn away or to soften your heart, or, or sorry, say harden your heart to me? Because again, we remember this entire book of this Old Testament prophet Micah is forecasting a coming exile after 500, see the patience of God in this, 500 years of his people turning their backs, turning to other gods, uh, deliberately disobeying what God has called them to be and to do. And remember, God is in a covenant commitment with His people that He saved them, and they are to respond to His saving grace. And yet for all these years and all throughout the book of Micah, we see uh, moment after moment of either disobedience or rebellion or uh, moments of, of injustice where, remember in the early chapters of Micah, they were selfishly using power to serve self at the 
at the expense of others, instead of serving others with their power at the expense of themselves. And God is saying all through this book that as he raises this case, from God's side of the coin, the case is airtight. He's saying, have I done anything to you to cool your affections for me? And we realize very quickly, God's people, we realize very quickly, the problem's not in his court, the ball's in our court. That we are often faithless, that we are prone to wander, as the song says, that we are quick to turn our affection and our attention to other gods. We are quick to, to rebel. We want to uh, turn, we want to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own souls. This is the disposition of the human, broken, fallen heart. And notice God is bringing an indictment against them. But catch this. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Look at verse 2, second half of verse 2. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. Notice God's grace in that little phrase that even though God is, this is a heavy way to open this passage, even though God is bringing an indictment against his people, guess what? They're still his people. He's still their God. See God's patience in that. See God's mercy in that. That even when we are faithless, he still remains faithful. See the love of a heavenly father that as we as his sons, his daughters, his children, we're constantly turning, we're constantly rebelling, we're constantly shaking our fists against him. And in his love, he cares about us enough to take action in such a way that sanctifies us and, and draws us closer to himself. And we're still his people. See God's faithfulness in that. See God's kindness in that. See just how long-suffering and patient he truly is with us. See what God has done for you. And he asks this question, what, what, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, he says. And of course, the implied answer is, God, you've done nothing. You've done nothing in the sense that you've done nothing that would directly cause us to cool our affections for you that this case is an airtight case. It's a done case. We know where we stand in this case. And God says actually quite the opposite. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? He certainly hasn't wearied us. Look at what he, look at what he has done. Verses 4 and 5, God says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Oh, my people, remember, bring back to mind, recall what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. A third example, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And very briefly, in verses 4 and 5, what, what God's Word is doing here is, in some ways, summarizing the Old Testament story of redemptive history. God says, remember, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. Remember the Passover where God sends his destroyer, the angel of destruction, and, and all those who are under, remember, the blood of the lamb, whose blood is on the doorpost, God himself would pass over and they would be spared and saved and God would deliver them out of the land of Egypt. And when it says this in verse 4, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of slavery. In short, 
I saved you. I just saved you. And all throughout the Old Testament, when God's people in the Old Testament would ask the question, when did God save us? When was the paradigmatic, massive moment of God's saving grace? Everyone in the Old Testament would have pointed to the Exodus. Remember when God redeemed us? That's when he saved us. And if, we were, if you were an Old Testament uh, covenant person of God, you would look backward to that. And simultaneously, notice, we know the fuller story. We're on the other side of the cross and the other side of history. We know that, yes, God's saving power, we look backward to the Exodus, but notice that the Exodus also points ultimately forward to the cross, that there would be an ultimate greater deliverance, that there would be a, a, a more full picture of God's deliverance in His redeeming of you and I, His people of all time and all places who put their faith and trust in Christ, that on the cross, this was the ultimate Passover lamb, this was the ultimate time that God himself sent his son to shed his blood for us that we might be passed over and that God would, would spare us and save us and redeem us. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament is pointing forward, look for the prophet like Moses, look for the king like David, look for the true Passover lamb, the ultimate scapegoat, the one who would lead my people, the king. And we see that that moment, it finds its fullest expression in what, who Christ is and what he has done for you and I. God says, I saved you. Remember that. Never get over that. And I saved you by sheer grace and grace alone. That you and I, have you noticed this? That all that we have contributed to our salvation is sin and brokenness and rebellion. All that he contributes is grace, everything else, mercy, forgiveness, adoption, redemption. He chooses us into his family. This is the message of the gospel. It's a message of grace. Never get over that, dear brother and sister in Christ. Never get over the moment where you trusted him as your savior. Appreciate again and again and again and again that he did not look at you and say, what an asset to the kingdom you will be. He didn't say, hey, where, where are the valedictorians of the Christian world? I need to save them first. You know what the gospel is? He doesn't save us because we are so perfect and righteous and that we are so savvy and smart and wise. He saves us because we need a savior. Because we are dead in our sins. We're lost. We're trapped. We're enslaved. He does all the work. We respond by faith. Never get over that moment. Never get over your salvation. And then never get over the ways in which he sustains us. That's what this verse is also doing. Verse 4 says, I saved you. And then three moments out of redemptive history, God's word highlights to show how he also sustains us. He not just saves us. He does that, absolutely, those who trust in him. But he also sustains his people. He says, remember Moses and Aaron and Miriam? These leaders that I provided for you, men and women, to lead you out of the land of Egypt, God says, I gave those to you. I gave them to you. I called them. I equipped them. I put them in that place for that moment in history to be my hands and feet to lead you out of Egypt. Verse 5, God's word says, Remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. This verse, this portion of this verse is winking back to a, a moment in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapters 22 to 24-ish, around there, when an enemy king 
an enemy of God's people, an enemy of Israel, an enemy king commissions a false prophet to go curse God's people. And along the way, and in the journey, God recycles that intention. God turns what is meant for evil, recycles it for what is good. And where this enemy king commissioned a false prophet to offer a curse, <laughs> this is beautiful, God hijacks the process. And he recycles the intentions, and he actually uses that prophet to bless his people. And the outcome that this enemy king wanted was absolutely undone, and it backfired in his face, and God used him to bless his people in this journey. That's the second episode. Third episode that God highlights is what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, second half of verse 5. Remember these, that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what that is referring to is the moment where God led his people across the Jordan River. We often remember, remember when God split the Red Sea? Remember the film Prince of Egypt? And how God delivered his people? He splits the Red Sea, his people walk through on dry ground. Did you know that a similar scene happened later at the Jordan River? God's people come to another body of water that they need to cross that would undo them if they tried to just walk into it in, in and of their own strength. They take a step, the river splits, and God's people walk through again on dry land, winking backward to the Exodus, pointing forward to ultimate deliverance. And God says, stir these in your mind, stir them in your memory. Never get over them. Recognize that I saved you by grace and grace alone. In, in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7 says... It was not because you were more in number that, than any other people that the Lord sent his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And notice what Deuteronomy 7 is saying. It's it's a very unflattering verse at first, isn't it? What it's saying is, God is saying to his people, y'all listen, to paraphrase, y'all listen, I didn't save you because you were so great. I didn't save you because you were so mighty. I didn't save you because I looked down and tried to find the all-star cast. I didn't save you because I needed varsity-level Christians on my side. I saved you because... I saved you because I chose to, because I'm a loving God, because I'm a gracious and heavenly Father. And for a moment, it's very unflattering, isn't it? Oh, we're not so special. But after that wears off and you realize, but then see His grace. And that's exactly why we are so special in His sight. Not because of us, but because of Him. Because of His love poured out to us. This is the message of the gospel. See what God has done for you. And see how he saved and sustained you. So I would encourage you, dear brother and sister in Christ, go back through your prayer journals. I know some of you journal and you write things down, different milestones and different prayers and different ways that God is working. Read old journals. Read what you were praying about last month or last year or 10 years ago. Some of you might not journal. I would encourage you, look back through old calendars. What, what were you doing in five years ago this week? or 10 years ago this week, think back the different milestones and the different struggles and the different questions that you had at different seasons of your life, and then appreciate and recognize God brought me through those. 
think through different moments in your career, different struggles that you were facing, perhaps as a family, things that were breaking your heart in seasons past, bright opportunities that you were looking forward to in seasons past. Remember the prayers that you prayed and He answered. Also remember the prayers that you prayed and He didn't answer and you were happy that He didn't answer them, how you asked them. Remember these moments. It, engage your sanctified imagination and get nostalgic about the ways that God has moved in the past, not to fall in love with a past season for a past season's sake, but to stir your affections to fall in love with the God who was with you in that past season, the God who was faithful back then, the God who is faithful today, the God who will be faithful tomorrow, that He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and He is your God. And he has poured out his love to you. And let that stir your heart. And oftentimes, our heart will go through two different phases. First, confession. First, we go through confession. Because we realize, even in this moment, for God's people, he's bringing an indictment against his people. His people's hearts have hardened and cooled in their affection to him. God reminds them, do you remember what I've done for you? And there is a very natural and fitting and appropriate place for us as Christians to say, you know what, Lord, I am sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me for my doubts. Forgive me for my lack of faith. Forgive me for turning to you. Forgive me for forgetting just how faithful you've been to me. Forgive me. It, it moves our hearts to confession. And then through confession, through the blood of Christ, it moves our hearts to worship. It moves our hearts to praise that when you start to look back over your life, you know all those coincidence moments that you realize, man, if that, if that person didn't come in that season which opened this door, which led me to the, this person through this circumstance, through this valley that brought me to this, there's infinitely too many coincidences, isn't there? It's almost like God's sovereign over this whole thing, isn't it? Stir your hearts in that. Let that move your affections to the place of recognizing <laughs> He is God and there is no other. That we are to praise the God from whom all blessings flow, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Praise Him. Worship Him. Give Him your life. And that's what these opening verses are talking about. See what God has done for you. This is the message of the gospel. And how then does that fit with our obedience? Or how does that fit then with, with justice? Well, Michael will go on to say, but first, first step, and it's an important first one, see what God's done for you. Then, then, after that, as a consequence, as a response to that, then see what God asks of you. See what he's done for you. Now see what God asks of you. Look at what it says, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for, the trans for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, we have to appreciate that by verse 6, God has taken his people somewhat through a process already. He's brought an indictment against them. They're recognizing, oh my gosh, I'm in the wrong, he is in the right. And in an attempt to respond, you can almost hear almost the frazzled pain.
panic of verses 6 and 7. That they're appreciating, oh my word, I'm in the wrong. How do I respond? And then they try to throw everything at God. <laughs> Kitchen sink included. Look at what they do. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? How about burnt offerings? That would have been the best. How about thousands of rams and thousands of rivers? Now they're going for quantity. Maybe if he doesn't want the best, I'll give him everything. And then they try to give what's most dearest and precious to them. How about, how about my firstborn? And it's almost this frantic sense of, God, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pay you back. What do you want? Uh, take this, take that, take it all. Take it all from me. But notice there's, there's a heart, there's a heart in this response that God's people are still trying to appease God by their obedience. They're trying to appease God by their work, by their effort, by giving to God what is either best burnt offerings, by trying to give the most, they're just going for quantity, by trying to give what is dearest to God. And they're still trying to appease him. They're still trying to earn his favor. And it's very often the case that our hearts get drawn back to that, that we're actually trying to barter with God we're trying to deal with him. We're trying to broker a deal with him where we either are trying to use our obedience to either get him off our back or to get him on our side. Sometimes we try to work through our obedience in such a way that we've actually forgotten the gospel of grace, that we forget that we've been saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and we view our work, our effort, our performance, our, our religious busyness, our, our, our service to our neighbor, our service to our family, we, we start to view that as if that was provided our righteousness to stand before a holy God. And when we do that, it, it spins us in this anxious, uh, this, this anxious turmoil where we're trying to throw everything at him. And the reason we get so anxious is because we'll never know when is enough enough. When is enough enough? How do you repay infinite grace? How do you repay infinite love? When, when we come with nothing but our sin and nothing but our brokenness and God gives all of himself and he gives his son for us, what are you or I going to give to say, you know what, God, you've given me grace. I'm trying, let me, let me balance the scales. Let me pay you back. Do you see, dear brother and sister, we can't pay him back. There's nothing that we can do to, to, to balance the scales. It is by sheer and utter grace that we are saved. And that's why in our Christian life, when we slide into seasons of, of trying to barter with God, trying to strike a deal with God, have you had those prayers before? I've slid into those prayers. God, I promise I will never fall into this sin again if you just give me a second chance. I mean, we find that those prayers last like five or six minutes. <laughs> and then we got to pray it again. Or we say, God, if you just open this door for me, I promise I will give you this part of my life. And we get through that door and we forgot our own promise, don't we? God, if you just do this for me, then don't worry. I promise I will never be faithless to you. Again, we're trying to barter with him. We're trying to strike a deal. Dear Christian, you don't need to try to strike a deal anymore because the deal's been finished. The work is done. Christ has saved you. 
And when we slip into that tendency of our heart, it's often because we've forgotten the cause of, our, uh, the cause of God's grace, that He poured out His grace to us, not because of anything we have done, <laughs> but because all of who He is, all of what He's poured out to us. Remember the cause of grace, that it is grace and grace alone. And sometimes we pray prayers like, well, if God saved me by grace, if nothing can pluck me from his hand, so it says elsewhere in Scripture, well then, I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> Notice also, if we have moments like that in our hearts, we haven't fully appreciated the response of grace. That we recognize that we are saved, yes, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as another has said, saving faith is a kind and quality of faith that does not remain alone, that it cannot help but work itself out through good works, through love of others, through service of others, through loving God, through, through doing things for Him. Saving faith is like an apple seed. If you put an apple seed in the ground and it has water and dirt, it cannot help but grow into an apple tree. Same thing with saving faith. If you put your hope and trust and faith in Christ and received His grace, there is a natural outgrowth and consequence. Your life will produce good works. That's just, that's just how these things fit together. That's how it flows together. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and this kind of faith does not remain alone, but it expresses itself in a lifelong journey of Christian discipleship. See what these verses are saying, that God requires nothing from you to earn grace, and God asks everything of you in response to grace. And this is how our obedience to Him is not out of an attempt to appease Him or earn His pleasure or somehow pay Him back. Our response to grace is a desire to pay it forward, is a desire to, to receive His grace and say, there's no way I can pay you back. There's no way. And you're not even asking for me to pay you back as if I can somehow repay what Christ has done for me. So, Lord, you have my whole life. Help me to love you and serve you and to love others. And notice, this is a response from grace, not a way to achieve achieve or earn grace. And that's why the prophet Micah closes in verse 8 when he says, he, he, he's told you, <laughs> he's told you what he asks of you. This is right on the heels of God's people saying, whoa, 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 all of this grace, what do I do? Take the best, take the most, take most dearest to me. Micah says, he, he's told you, he's told you. In response to who God is, he has told you, oh man, what is good, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And this walking humbly with our God, this is the life of bringing our lives in conformity to His desire and His will and His word. It's the Christian life of discipleship. Lord, for the rest of our lives here on this earth, we want to walk with you. We want to spend time with you. We want to get to know you. We want to do the things that you like to do. We want to uh, care about the things that God cares about. We want to be like him. Like an eager child seeks to mimic a loving and doting father. That's us to our heavenly father, to walk humbly with our God. And we're also called to 
love kindness and to do justice. And notice, as, as others have pointed out, both, both a vertical component of the gospel and a horizontal effect of the gospel, implications of the gospel, that if he saved us and we walk humbly with him, this is a vertical component that cannot help but spill over into the horizontal components of our life. That we are called to do things like do justice and to love kindness. And this word love kindness is this beautiful picture Firstly, of God's steadfast, loyal, stubborn love to us. And God says, hey, I've poured that out on you. Now go show someone else. Go be stubbornly loving to someone else. Go be patient with someone else. Go show mercy to someone else. Go be kind to someone else. Why? Because you've received it ultimately from me. Now do it for others. Turn to your neighbor, turn to your spouse, turn to your friends, turn to your classmates and reflect my character through you to them. And they will see the glory of God through the life of his followers. To love mercy or to love kindness. And God also says to do justice. To do justice. It's a command. And we often appropriately, when we first hear this word justice, we often think about making wrongs right. And that is justice, taking what is wrong and making it right. And we do that in all sorts of spheres of life. Parents, every single day in your household, you do this with little ones, right? Something has made, been wrong. A part of your role is to help make it right. That's an expression of justice. But notice, even in this definition, making wrongs right, that's at least what justice is. But justice is not just a term that lawyers. This is not just for them. It's not just for people that have to make decisions of law or public policy. Notice that justice is not just making wrongs right, but it's also doing right by others. It's also turning to our neighbors, our loved ones, and doing right by them. So did you know, dear brother and sister in Christ, mere generosity, did you know that's a biblical expression of justice? Just being generous? with your time, with your resources, with your emotional bandwidth? Did you know that uh, generosity through, uh, through uh, resources, financial resources, is an expression of justice? Remember last year when we did our Thanksgiving offering, one of the things we raised money for was an organization called RIP Medical Debt that forgives medical debt in the area for a penny on the dollar. We raised something in the universe of $20,000 for that. That forgave $3.1 million of medical debt in the Lake County area. Did you know that was an expression of biblical justice? Did you know every single month when we collect our congregational care fund, that's money from you for you? It's for the membership of Village Church who are going through seasons of financial difficulty and strain and challenge. That's one of the ways we say to one another, hey, I want to help bear your burden. I want to help lighten your load. Did you know that is a biblical expression of justice? Did you know some of our partnership ministries like, like Love Inc. Or, or Kindred Life where we are seeking to help the others? Those are biblical expressions of justice. See how... how multifaceted this word truly is. It's an attribute of God himself. And it's an attribute through his people, his church, his people, we express that to others, that when we both make wrongs right and when we do right by others, we are reflecting the character of God himself. And also notice what that, this verse says, do justice, two words. It's a, it's a command 
But notice, it doesn't go into like 15 chapters of what that means for 21st century North American uh, a context. And that means we've got to do this humbly. We've got to do it humbly. Because there are thoughtful, Christ-loving, God-fearing, Scripture-saturated believers who might come at a justice topic from a different angle than you. You might have disagreements on how, does, how is justice best worked out in this 21st century context. There might be differences there. So we've got to do this humbly. We've got to do it humbly. And secondly, we have got to do it biblically. Because the moment that God says to do justice, we are already neck deep in questions like, well, what is right and wrong? What is true and not true? Uh, how do I relate to my neighbor? Uh, what will help build a flourishing society? I mean, these are all questions that you have to immediately start answering, and these are all questions the Bible speaks into. And this topic, justice, this is a topic that absolutely a biblical understanding of what God has said in Scripture speaks to all these answers. And this topic also is a topic that our culture tries to take a stab at the answer too, doesn't it? And we have got to be thoughtful. We've got to be prayerful. We've got to be biblical. We've got to be humble. That as we navigate these topics, we do it biblically. We do it in a way that honors God, that reflects who He is and what He's done for us. And I would encourage you, this is, this is a massive topic. That, this would be another series for an entirely another day, but I would just encourage you, I, there's a link to a few articles in the discussion guide. Every week we put out a, a discussion guide for our gatherings, our groups that are meeting together and discussing the text most recently preached. There's a number of articles there that I think are a good first step, that if this is a topic of interest to you, and you want to know more about what the Bible has to say about that, those articles would be a good first place to go. I would encourage you and commend you to read those. You might land on different conclusions than what you read. Uh, you might be helped and find insights that you hadn't seen before. I would encourage you to start there. Check it out. Dig deep and see what God has to say about this important concept. And we see as we walk through this verse, as we asked in the, the original opening of this message, how does the gospel fit together with our obedience? <laughs> how does the gospel fit together with justice? And we realize, don't we, there is an order that first we've got to see who God is and what he's done. And from that flows our obedience. From that flows a desire to do justice in a world. That if we reverse that order, we lose the gospel. If we reverse that order, we lose biblical Christianity. Because what Micah is saying, he's saying in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 6 in these eight verses, he's saying to love God, this is the vertical component, and to love people, the horizontal component, love God and love people, not for your salvation, not as salvation, but do this from salvation. That the gospel is the center. It's all of who God is and what he's done in Christ. Love him and then love others. Not because you're trying to get saved. Not because you're trying to earn God's approval and favor. And also don't love others as salvation as if that in and of itself is the ultimate end goal for all of eternity. Love other people from your salvation as an expression of obedience and love and worship to God. Do you see how this fits together? Do you see how this is so important? 
Because religious moralism, religious moralism is going to say stuff like, I obey God for salvation because it's up to me to be accepted. And if that's true, if God accepts us by our performance, we got to get to work. We got to pray more. We got to give more. We got to be busier. We have to be more involved. We have to give more of our resources, more, 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 more. And we realize that there's never going to be enough. When is enough going to be enough? So we can't obey God for our salvation. A post-Christian secular world is going to say things like, I need to love others, love my neighbor, love others as salvation. Why? Because it's up to me to heal the world. A post-Christian secular world is watching the same news that you and I are watching, and they're seeing brokenness that you and I are seeing, and they're saying, if we're going to heal the world, it's up to me. We got to get at it. We got to get to it. We got to work and work and work and work. We got to love our neighbor. We got to love our neighbor. Because if we're not going to do it, who's going to do it? And everything is going to fall apart and everything is going to break. Notice diagnosis spot on. The world is broken. We do need to love our neighbor. Solution? Not quite there yet, right? Because we know the gospel. We know that the gospel speaks into both of these, both religious moralism. It says your religious performance earned God's approval. Both post-secular, uh, uh, post-Christian secularism that says I need to love my neighbor as salvation. That's the end goal. The gospel says it's not even, it's not even a middle road. It's something completely different. The gospel says I obey God and love others from my salvation. Why? Because Christ alone saves and Christ alone will heal this broken world. So we point to him. Love God, friends. Love others. Not because you're trying to earn his favor. Not because healing the world is all up to you, but because it's all up to him. And he wants to use you and I in this process. So for his sake, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we immediately understand and see and realize that we desperately need you Lord, I pray that you would each and every listener who can hear my voice, those who are humbled by a place of confession and brokenness, may they find grace and mercy in you. Those who are hungry to be uh, a, a, an agent and a person of reconciliation and healing and a peaceful presence in this world, Lord, mobilize us to do that. Use us in our spheres and in our workplaces and in our family and friends that we might reflect a small glimpse of what we will fully see on that final day, that we would taste a little tiny taste, even on earth as it is in heaven. Mobilize us to that end, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney, or go to www.vcgurney.org.